He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the, tech, at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I think most of us know that the way that we live and the things that we do matter, but some of us might not be as aware or we might not think about the fact that our motives matter too. Uh, in fact, I had a conversation recently with one of my sons, and uh, he had been in his class, and he, he told me that uh, he had gotten in trouble, and I talked to his teacher, and he said, you know, he said, Dad, um, I, I, my teacher lied. Like, she, she lied. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. Um, okay, you need to sort of pull back a little bit. Um, calm down. What do you mean that, that she lied? I'm, I'm not sure you understand what that word means. And he said, well, here's the deal. My, my teacher is saying something that's not right. That's not the way that it happened. And then he kind of explained the way the event went down. And I said, okay, I could see how uh, what just happened, what, the way that you're describing it. Yeah, that wasn't, um, uh, that was not the way that it went down from your eyes. And so that's different than what she said. But let me explain to you that still, I don't think that what she did was lying. Here's the reason. I I don't think that her motive was to in any way take something from you or do you harm or do something that wasn't true. Uh, She saw it that way. And my my guess is she's probably right and you're wrrong. But even if you're right, her motives uh, were not, they were not malicious. And when we're talking about lying, there is some kind of malicious intent that is behind that. You see it? And so motives matter. We see this all over the Bible, and I think there's a really great illustration that Elizabeth Elliot gives about the importance of motives. Uh, she tells this fictional, it's a fictitious story about Jesus with his disciples. And, he, and she says, so basically, just imagine that Jesus has his disciples, and one day he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up a rock, and I want you to carry it for me today. And so Peter, of course, he's very excited and he runs and he finds the smallest rock that he can find. He shoves it in his pocket and he carries it around all day. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, okay, I want you to take your rock. Now watch this. And he waves his hand over it and turns every one of those rocks into bread. And he's sitting there like, well, that's not very good. So he eats it. He's hungry. And then the next day, Jesus says, okay, pick up a rock. I want you to carry a rock for me today. And so he comes and he picks up another rock. But this time he's like, man, I know how this story goes. So he goes and he gets the biggest rock he can find, right? And he like heaves it up and he shoves it on his back. And he's kind of like struggling to get it all around all day. And he's exhausted at the end of the day. And the end of the day comes and Jesus says, okay, are you ready? He says, I'm ready. Let's go. Supper time. And he says, I want you to throw the rock into the water. And Peter goes, wait, what? And Jesus can see that he's dumbfounded. And he says, now, let me, let me just explain. Peter, um, do you remember what I asked you to do? I asked you to carry the rock for me. Who were you carrying your rock for? See, the motives of Peter's heart were all about Peter's stomach. They weren't about his love for Jesus. Well, today what we're going to find is a text 
that really at its heart speaks about works and behind those works, the motives behind why we obey Jesus and why we ought to obey Jesus. Uh, We're going to see that clearly in our text. We're right back in our uh, series of the Gospel of Mark where we are going to be talking about, again, the amazing true story of Jesus. Now, why is this the amazing true story of Jesus? Well, because he keeps on doing really amazing stuff. And after he does it, people that see it, they say something like, wow, we have never seen anything like that before, right? They're amazed. And so here we are again, back in this series, seeing what Jesus is doing. And we find last week that Jesus dumbfounded the scribes who criticized Jesus in their hearts for his claim to be able to forgive sins. They, they didn't think that was right. Well, Jesus is back at it again this week, challenging the scribes' notions of righteousness by hanging out with a bunch of sinners. Like, not just one, but a bunch. And so he's going to call them to the mat to consider the way that they think about God and his righteousness afresh. So this morning, we're going to see uh, one of my favorite truths in all of the Bible in this text. And that's that Jesus only came for sinners And that's good news for everybody. That's our main point. Jesus only came for sinners. And that's good news for everybody, right? So we're going to see that in our text this morning. Uh, First, notice in verses 13 to 14 that we see that radical sinners know they need grace. Radical sinners know they need grace. Look, Look with me in verses 13 and 14 again of Mark 2. This is good stuff. You don't want to miss it. Here's what he says. He went out again beside the sea. This is Jesus. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, Capernaum, I've told you before, it it lies on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a lake. And you know that Jesus, in our last text, Last week was in Capernaum, and now he's going out to the sea, which is right next to Capernaum. And the crowd chases Jesus as he's walking along the seashore, teaching them what God's kingdom is like. And and he's just flowing with it, like this is what it's like, and this is what people are like in that kingdom, and how we ought to live in that kingdom. And I'm sure that in that moment, as he's walking and he's teaching them, they are hanging on every powerful word that flows from this man's mouth who they have seen exercise demon and heal the sick and and it's in this moment that that as he's traveling and talking about the kingdom that he pulls in for a pit stop to pick up a fifth disciple Levi you see it like all of a sudden okay this is a good time guys I need number five and he pulls in Levi now Levi of course is the one who Matthew calls Matthew in his gospel And Levi here, i got to tell you, uh, it's interesting that Jesus pulls over for him. Because Levi really looks like a bust of a draft pick as a disciple right out of the gate. I mean, you're thinking, this is not the kind of guy you ought to be choosing, Jesus. Let me choose for you. Uh, Maybe you're just not good at hiring folks, but this is not the kind of guy you want being uh, a follower of of this new kingdom and and a proclaimer of it. Why? He's a tax collector. Now... Don't miss this. The other four disciples up to this point are fishermen. And and this guy is a tax collector. But the difference between him and them is more than vocational. See, the difference between these fishermen and the tax collector is really profound. I know all of us know accountants, right? 
I mean, some of y'all know accountants. Uh, we're not going to pick on accountants today, okay? I come from a family of accountants, like multiple generations of accountants. It's a, it's, it's a wondrous thing that I'm not an accountant. Uh, but it's an obvious thing if you see me try to do accounting. I'm not an accountant. But I actually come from a, a really long uh, line of accountants. My dad, my grandparents, my uncles, all, all accountants. In fact, as a kid, I, I still remember the day that I found my dad's Federal Bureau badge. He, they have badges, these, these guys that work for the IRS. True story. And, and I found it. And I was like super excited because I, I saw it and it had like this little like police symbol on it. And I'm thinking, man, my dad, he works for the government. And, and I was like, man, what does he do? And, and I started thinking, imagining that my dad was a double agent, uh, sort of like James Bond, right? And I'm thinking, man, what other cool stuff does my dad have that he hasn't told me about? And so I went and I asked my dad, and uh, you, you could just see in my face the, the, the shock and sadness as he tried to explain the Internal Revenue Service and taxes and the fact that he never actually fired a gun and, unless you would qualify a Red Rider BB gun. And I thought, oh, that's not, that's not the story that I had in my head. I mean, he audited people to make sure if they paid the right amount of tax. And he was an expert at credits and debits. That's pretty simple. That's what most accountants do. And I still, you know, to be honest with you, after that, used to tell people that my dad worked for the government and I could tell them what he did specifically, but it'd be safer for them if I didn't. And I wanted to make it seem like a glorious, fearful kind of thing. Now, know this. My dad is one of the most honest people I know, and he kept the law meticulously. Not so with Levi. See, Levi was a minor official who collected a variety of taxes for the Jewish client king, Herod Antipas. Wasn't a great guy. And even though Levi didn't work for the Romans, uh, James Brooks, a commentator, says that these tax collectors like Levi would have likely have been just as hated. Why? For their dishonesty, their use of intimidation, and even force in contact with the Gentiles. In other words, guys like Levi would have been more likely to carry crowbars than calculators, right? Uh, They're they're coming to bring intimidation and force, and and they're often skimming off the top. These were not not good guys. They weren't guys that wore pocket protectors. Uh, These were rough, dangerous guys that you didn't want to see showing up at your door. And Jews saw tax collectors as being radical sinners. And the New Testament... Uh, If you read through, you'll notice that it often picks up on this. And if you didn't know that they were seen as a radical sinner, some of these texts wouldn't make sense to you. So take, for instance, Luke's Gospel in Luke 18, 11. Uh, We have a scene where this Pharisee shows up and he's about to pray next to this tax collector. And we're told that this Pharisee prays in his heart and he says to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Catch this list of guys. Extortioners. The unjust, adulterers, and and it seems to be getting worse and worse. And then catch what he says. You're like, what's next? And he says, and even like this tax collector, right? And you're thinking, really? I mean, I don't like the IRS, but it can't be that bad, right? Extortioners. But in their minds, these Pharisees would have seen this tax collector, this Levi, that leaves everything to follow Jesus at his word as the worst sinner of the lot that he mentions. And catch this. Because this particular tax collector's booth sits next to the sea, right? You're like, why is that in there? 
I mean, part of a detail just to show that it's authentic. But what about this? It's likely he was stationed there to collect the taxes from fishermen like Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the other four disciples. Now just imagine that. Jesus rolls up with four fishermen and they're looking at this guy who's responsible for taking their taxes, skimming off the top, using intimidation. And Jesus says, guess what? Now you're going to follow me. And uh, hey, James and John, could y'all just scoot over a little bit so he can jump in? Now, if you would call yourself a non-Christian this morning, you you wouldn't say that you you follow Jesus Christ, that He's your Savior, that you're a follower of Christ, or or maybe you're just trying to figure that out this morning. You don't know where you stand with Him. Uh, I want you to know that that Jesus, I believe, wants to remind uh, you this morning. He wants to tell you something new this morning about Himself. And that is this. The, The only way to God is narrow. Okay, It's only narrow. But... It is wide open to radical sinners like Levi who are willing to drop everything to follow Jesus with reckless abandon. Like this is a wide open call for for everyone here. If you are a radical sinner and you're thinking I'm the most radical sinner there ever is and I can't get to God right now because I'm just, I'm not holy enough, I'm not righteous enough, I want you to know the door is wide open. See, he was a radical sinner with a lucrative job, power, money, influence, and relationships. And this radical sinner, tax collector, he did the math. And he knew that if he had the whole world credited to his account, but he lacked just one thing, Jesus, it wasn't enough, he would lose his soul. And he traded it all in on Christ. He left everything for Jesus because everything wasn't enough without Jesus. Don't miss this. This episode highlights a stunning act of grace that has been replicated again and again. And this morning, you're invited to put your faith in Jesus and to give your life for Him. It might cost you everything in your life, but you will gain forgiveness of your sins, a new identity in Christ, and eternal life with God. Friend, if you haven't done that, don't leave without talking to me today about how that can become your reality. But I believe there's also a message here for for you, my Christian brothers and sisters. And, and that's that Jesus wants Levi, I believe, to remind us just how amazing grace is this morning. I think He wants to startle us with it. I mean, there's, there's nothing domesticated about the scandalous grace of God that flows from the cross of Christ to ridiculous sinners. There's nothing safe about it here. Uh, it is meant, I believe, to make us as uncomfortable as the scribes who would have seen Levi coming to Christ feel. God's grace, brothers and sisters, it ought to challenge our preconceived notions about God, about ourselves, and about others. If we really see God, I mean, just think about this. It is quite possible that when Jesus rolled up on Levi, he had to tell John and James to scoot over and make room for this man on their journey that may have been the guy that was just days before intimidating them for taxes. Do you wonder if the disciples maybe even debated before this? What Jesus saw in them that was so special that He would choose a guy like John and James? Maybe they were even wondering who would sit at His left and right in heaven. And when Jesus suddenly called a radical sinner to follow Him too, I wonder what that might have meant to them that they would have had to make this enemy, this ridiculous sinner, their brother, just like that. We talk about a paradigm shift. And why? Why would would they be forced to, to think, okay, now, what does this mean about my standing before God if Jesus calls people like this? 
And now what does this mean about my family that I'm having to love someone like that? And all of this because of what? Because of grace. See, we need to be startled afresh by grace if we're going to see revival. Just think about this. We just sang Amazing Grace by John Newton. Maybe the most popular hymn in the history of the church. I think something's got to be broken in us. If we can sing a song like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now can see. And not have some kind of emotional response to the grace of God, right? There's something broken in us. When we show up and sing that song and we're not moved and, and we don't maybe tear up a little bit, we're thinking to ourselves spiritually, man, I'm just, I'm not in a good place right now. I need to pray more, right? Amazing song. Did you know that Newton, who wrote that song, before he came to Christ, he was a slave trader, a rapist, and a murderer. Jesus called him to himself. And when John Newton writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he is speaking of himself as that wretch. And those are the realities that he's thinking about when he meditates on that amazing grace that saved a sinner even like him. Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of grace that Jesus has ushered in. It is not a comfortable grace. It is a grace that calls ridiculous sinners to Himself like John Newton or like Paul who was killing Christians when God called him. And here's what that means. This is, this is great news. This is the best news in the world. It means that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. And no one is beyond the need of God's grace. Not your husband, not your child, not your neighbor, not even that neighbor with the cool neck tattoos. None of them are outside of the reach of God's grace. We all need God's grace equally. And the verdict's in. Jesus saves radical sinners. Let's pray that God would work in us in such a way that we would sense such an awesome amazement over grace that people would think that we were out of our minds for our excitement over the good news of what Jesus has done for us and what He can do for you. But we, I think we also see something about our church here. Don't, don't you want to be a place that gives plenty of space for grace? Don't you want to be that place, that place where you really believe that if you can get your friends to come and experience the love of others, that they will see that there is something at work here that is different than that which is work in the world and they will love it. I'm so grateful that we have such a loving church. Love it. Love our church. Love the community that we have here. The love. I love having people pull me into to rooms and say, I just want to tell you how much I love this church. I love to get that. And don't you want to be a church where radical sinners can come and find Jesus and be changed forever? I do. And that's why I think membership is so important. See, we want a clear path for how we help people coming out of sin to follow Jesus and a committed relationship with Christ and others. We want to be clear about who we are saying is following Jesus and the family that they're going to be committed to. As a church, we want to be hospitable to those who are visiting. We want to look for people who are new, new faces. We want to share the love of God that's been shown with us with them. Give them a compelling case for needing to know the God that we have met in Christ. I think this changes everything. 
There's a second thing that we see in this text. Not only does Christ save radical sinners, we also see here, notice really clearly, that self-righteousness restrains the religious from Jesus. Self-righteousness restrains the religious from Jesus. Look with me again in in verses 15 and 17. So you'll notice here that the, the scene quickly shifts from Levi, the tax collector, to many tax collectors in a home and what seems to be scribes of the Pharisees around that home. Now, he says in verse 15, he says it this way, he says, and as he reclined at the table in his house, and I think this is Jesus reclining in the house of the Levi, of Levi, it says many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, it's, it's hard to miss how comfortable Jesus looks with many tax collectors at Levi's house. I mean, notice he's reclined out at the table. Now, I don't know how many of you are invited over to people's homes and you're like, man, this is great. I'm just, do you mind if I just kind of lay down next to this table? Like I'm just going to lay down here and you just kind of drop food in my mouth. This is awesome. This is not the kind of thing that we would do at, at our house, right? But this was pretty normal in Palestine. And what this really gives us a picture of is that Jesus' posture tips us off that he's eating a formal or festive meal with what are probably Levi's friends. You know, the other sinners and tax collectors. And Levi doesn't seem to follow Jesus any time at all before he is inviting his friends to come meet Jesus. And now the Son of Man, who claims to be able to forgive sins, is surrounded by a group of radical sinners. You're like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the righteous one of Israel. Here he is eating. An intimate affair that reflected significant relationship. It's a party. They're they're having a party with Jesus. That had to be awesome. And and catch who crashes it. Did you see this? It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Here they are again. Came to ruin the party. The scribes, they seem to be, in this context, uh, an elite, maybe subgroup of the Pharisees who were especially given to studying all of those 613 laws of the the Old Testament and, and how do we apply that? And by human standards, these were the good guys. Not much fun at parties, but the good guys. And notice that they asked the disciples in verse 16, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let me ask you something. Why do you think these scribes have to ask the disciples and not Jesus Himself? Small detail, but but curious. Well, we don't know for sure, but I I believe that we have a powerful image of the deadliness of self-righteousness here. Just catch this. The scribes asked the disciples instead of Jesus because they would have had to have left their self-righteousness at the door of this sinner's house to get to Jesus. Do you see it? I mean, what an illustration. Like, I can't get to Jesus because I'd have to leave my own righteousness here and I kind of need it. It's my, you know... Security blanket with God. 
And the scribes ask the disciples instead of Jesus for this point. They, they just can't get to Jesus through all of those sinners. And they fear that they'll become morally and richly, uh, and ritually unclean so that they will not be able to come before God if they go before those sinners. Right? And here's Jesus, the God-man. Like, I can't come to God because I'll get sin on me. And here's Jesus dining with the sinners. Really interesting picture. But don't miss this. As the sinners are celebrating with Jesus, these men who have spent their whole lives building a righteousness for themselves, we call this self-righteousness, cannot get to Jesus. And so I guess we really see who the real accountants are in the story, don't we? See, the real accountants in this story are the spiritual accountants, these scribes. And they don't want to lose any of the righteousness that they have built up for themselves in their credit column. And it's hard. It's, it's not hard to envision these scribes with a, a white-knuckled grip on their own paltry righteousness as they struggle to catch a glimpse of the king of righteousness that's just a room away. So close. Talk about a paradigm shift. The king of righteousness parties with a house full of sinners signaling in the clearest way possible that Jesus' mission is going to challenge the mission of these religious elites. Clearly, Jesus' mission of redeeming sinners challenges their mission of avoiding sinners, right? Jesus is trying to get to the sinners. They're trying to get away from them. And here, He says something very interesting. Jesus hears their question. Here's how He responds. It's really with the truism. He says, basically, healthy people... They, they don't need a doctor. Sick people do, right? So it shouldn't surprise you to see a doctor with sick people. Anybody here get shocked when you go to a doctor's office and find sick people in the waiting room, right? You're like, I don't know if this guy's really a doctor. Everybody's sick around here, right? Or what about when you go to a mechanic and all the cars are broken? Like, I don't know if they're doing their job. Like, everything's broken. No, no. See, what we find here is that Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's Jesus' mission. He came for sinners, for those who had sinned against God, were alienated from God, and needed God. And here's the irony. The literal accountants, right? These tax collectors knew they had a spiritual debt that only Jesus could pay, and they were eager for grace. But the spiritual accountants, they overestimated the credits that they had accrued for themselves and chose self-righteousness over Christ's righteousness. A major mistake accounting spiritually. See, I need to make a couple of clarifications here, I believe, with what this means. I think we could could take this in a couple of different ways that would not be helpful. So uh, let's just make a really quick couple of clarifications about what is meant and not meant here. First, we need to know that as we read this, obedience is good, okay? I know that's obvious, but I just need to say it, obedience is good. It's easy, I think, in this text to rally behind the sinners, right? Who are parting with Jesus. And then to judge the scribes. And and let's just make sure that we understand that we shouldn't hear, see Jesus say that the pursuit of obedience is bad. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not the point of the text. See, see these, these sinners are sinners who are following Jesus and I believe experiencing God's radical grace. There's a shift, a change that's happening here. That's not what's going on. See, I, I believe that something different is going on here. Why? Well, we know elsewhere. 1 John 5, 3. Right? John, one of the apostles. He, he says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God. 
that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So commandments aren't bad. We're not supposed not to obey them. In fact, they are a, a picture of a love for God. Putting our faith in Christ means seeking to obey God's Word, no matter how costly. But the problem here, it, it isn't the scribe's obedience. The problem is the scribe's motives. You, you see it? It's deeper than the, the obedience, the righteousness. See, our, our sinful hearts can do bad things with all sorts of good things, including obedience. And here's where the religion of the scribes is different from the Gospel. Right? Their religion is different than the Gospel. I believe Tim Keller explains helpfully when he says, see, religion operates on this principle. I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. So catch that? I, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But the operating principle of the Gospel is different. See, the operating principle of the Gospel is I am accepted by God through what Christ has done for me. Therefore, I obey. Now, I know that some of you might hear that and you say, well, that just seems like a distinction without a difference. But friends, let me tell you, that distinction makes all of the difference in the world. See, if we try to be obedient before coming to Christ, then we are trying to do something that we cannot do. All in danger of missing the gospel of grace here for a moralist gospel like the scribes that cast us really as just good people that are battling sin. I mean, our, our hearts are good and the problems are out there and we're just trying to sort of deal with it. Now, there is some truth in the moralistic gospel. I mean, it rightly does acknowledge that salvation should result in transformation of our character. But it misses grace. It completely misses it by claiming that God simply expects improvement, not perfection. So the church, really, in this scenario, really just kind of comes along you like Home Depot saying, you can do it and we can help, right? No, your problem's much worse than that. You are helpless unless someone with infinite strength comes to pull you up, and that's who Christ is. See, our problem is that we truly can't obey God apart from faith in Christ. All of our righteousness is deficient apart from Christ. So obedience, it's not bad. But second, sinners were both inside and outside of the house. Sinners were both inside and outside of the house. So here's the paradigm shifting conundrum that Jesus confronts these scribes with. If Jesus came for sinners... Does that mean that Jesus didn't come for the scribes who were righteous, right? I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Is that what Jesus is saying? In other words, were there righteous people who were okay and then sinners who needed Jesus? So here it seems the scribes already decided who the sinners were and it wasn't them, right? But that's not the testimony of Scripture. You remember Paul who quotes David in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. He says that every person but Jesus is a sinner. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. And in verses 19 to 20, he explains further, And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law 
So that, not that you might say, see, I'm a sinner and, and uh, or you're a sinner and I'm righteous so that we can like sort of figure out who's in what category. He says, no, he says, everyone's under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or righteous in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, God gave the law as a giant mirror and it's so that we can look into it and as we see what true humanity is to look like, it doesn't reveal like, man, I'm, I'm a beautiful person. Look at me. I just really got it together. I'm just, I'm great. I don't ever like commit adultery or even think about it. This is great. God must love me. It's not what it was for. No, the, the mirror has come so that when we look into it, we are reminded of our neediness, of how disheveled and broken we are, how marred we are, how, how, how unlike Christ we look and how needy we are for help, right? Like, I'm not talking about just a bad morning. I'm talking about a bad wreck of a life. And it's in that moment that we see that we are needy. We need a greater righteousness than our own. See, there isn't a two-tiered system of being accepted in God's presence. There aren't two ways to God. There's one, God's Son. Now, some don't come to God by their works and others by Jesus. We all need what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. Now, he's, he's not talking about extraterrestrials. See, Martin Luther said that we need an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves that is brought to us, rather than a righteousness that comes from us and out of us. All of us need alien righteousness. None of us have righteousness in ourselves that saves us. We all need that sweet exchange that Luther elsewhere writes of, whereby Christ comes and says, I am going to take your sin upon Myself, and I'm going to take My righteousness and accredit it to your account. You see that? We all need that sweet exchange whereby Jesus gives us His very righteousness. Our righteousness is not good enough in and of itself. In fact, Paul says, and, uh, or Isaiah says, they are all filthy rags before Him. Now here's the point. Self-righteousness is an attitude of the heart. And self-righteousness is grace-repelling. If we are self-righteous, then we are eschewing, we are hating, we are pressing off God's grace. I don't know about you, I'd rather have grace than self-righteousness any day. And its danger lies in its subtlety before others. But make no mistake, our self-righteousness is odious before God because it claims to indebt God to forgive us for sin for what we've done for Him. And no one makes God His debtor. Every good gift comes from Him and Him alone. Do you see it? The, The secret here is that Jesus only came for sinners. And that's good news for everybody. That's what He wants us to see. We we all are sinners in need of the grace that was to be found in that home in the person and work of Jesus. See, they thought they had bought in with their works, but they needed to be brought in by Jesus' grace. And there's no other way to get to God. So this morning, maybe you're wondering yourself, am I one of those that struggles with self-righteousness? And let me just say, I think probably yes. I think all of us, to some degree, struggle with self-righteousness. I think it's a a natural reaction. I think uh, friends of mine that I have that I would say are more liberal than me, 
struggle with self-righteousness. It's just they get angry over, uh, uh, more angry over abusing dogs and babies, right? I mean, but they have a law to themselves that is very significant and important. We all have a, a sense in which we struggle with self-righteousness. So how do we figure out if that's us? Well, let me just give you some diagnostic questions as we close to think about whether or not there are places in your heart and soul that grace needs to be visited afresh. The cure is the gospel. The condition is self-righteousness. Let's talk about that. First, one way you you can diagnose self-righteousness. This is a real clear and important way. Don't miss this. You are no fun at parties. All right, number two. You criticize everyone. You criticize everyone, right? So God has actually given you what you would consider to be a spiritual gift. You see with an unusual, maybe even spirit-motivated ability to see into people's souls and see all of their sins and all of their failures. And even more gifted you are at actually being able to articulate them in such ways that people feel them and are hurt by them immensely. It's a gift, right? And and you're able to just, you you see things that nobody else sees because God must have gifted you with that. You're, You're always looking to fix people. You can fix your wife and you can fix your husband and your kids and your elders. And nobody, I don't know why, can see as clearly as you, right? I mean, if God would just put you in charge, America would be great again, right? I mean, we just need you at the helm. And you are so far from grace and you don't even know it. You show problems without offering solutions or hope for the future. You know, there's no correction about like, here's, here's the good way to go and I'm so hopeful, I know that God's Spirit's in you. None of that. It's just a criticism. And you don't forbear when those others sit against you. You, know, you don't forbear like God has forborne with you and your sins. And so your own righteous standard, as you look at it and the way that it manifests itself and and the way that you treat others, it looks nothing like God's righteousness that comes and meets sinners and encourages and helps and lifts them up. It's not God-like. And that's how you know that you don't really have Christ's righteousness that is flowing from you. You are focusing on self-righteousness. What about this? Third, you... You recoil at criticism. Ha, this is me. You recoil. You hate criticism. You, you already have a hero for your life, right? And there's no room for Jesus. So who's the hero of your life? Well, it's you, right? I mean, now here's how you can tell if you, you're, you are your hero, all right? When someone critiques or confront you, I'm not talking about internet trolls. They're mean. They don't count. I'm talking about someone you trust that loves you. They come to you with a concern. Let me ask you, is your first, second, and third impulse to justify, defend, and protect yourself? Right? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, first, we all get a break, right? Second, all right, everybody messes up a couple times. Third time, like, it's sort of a trajectory, like, I'm going to win this, I need to justify myself. Do you find your fight-flight response kicking in, right? Your fight-flight reflex, it kicks in. Uh, because you sense danger, and all of a sudden you start hearing that pre-recorded message, danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? 
Like you're getting really close to something that matters a lot to me. And it could be because your identity is so wrapped up in your sense of self-righteousness that for someone to question that is for you to feel that your whole identity is being compromised. Right? If I am not righteous, then who am I? So when things go right, you look for the credit. Right? Did you see what I did? Like that worked and like, yeah, you played a good role, but do you remember what I, my place? Right? And then when things go wrong, you're looking for the scapegoat. Yeah, I mean, I I had a part in that, of course, but uh, the, the real issue, we need to focus on that, was what Bobby did, right? I mean, that was horrible. Here's the reality. You're bitter and you're angry and you're hiding and you're scared to death that someone will find out that you are a sinner. And if your identity is in Christ, here's the good news. Brother or sister, it frees us to see ourselves as sinners because we know that Christ is a great Savior, right? We know that our identity is based on what His work has been done for us rather than our work that has been done for Him. You you see, we don't have to be angry anymore. We don't have to be scared that people come in and see us as sinners. He's going to say, yeah, that's pretty much what the Bible says. Praise God for Jesus, right? How do you forth respond to suffering and pain. How do you respond to suffering and pain when bad things happen? When you get sick or when you are hurt or when you experience extreme loss or sadness, do you find yourself unable to get out of an endless loop of questions like, what did I do to deserve this? Or even arguing with God. I mean, haven't you seen all the good that I've done? Like what? Do you not see the good that's happening here? Why would you want to stop that? Or or what about why me and not that wretched sinner over there? See, in our dark moments, we start to kind of, I think, tally up our credits and debits and argue our case to God. That's what I do. And don't miss this. Hell would be fair, but we get grace. And so often our sufferings awaken the little scribe in all of us who starts arguing about what we deserve. But praise God that we get so much more and so much better than we deserve. We get Jesus. We have the promise that eternal healing and everlasting life with God awaits the brokenhearted who look to His Son. Friends, that is great news. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to tally up credits. Trust me. We have already seen that our inheritance blows away anything that we deserve. And finally, how do you respond to the successes of others? When other Christians get a job, when your friend who is single finds a husband or finds a wife, and you can't figure out how anybody could love an ugly guy like that, and why you didn't get hurt, what not. You want to be jealous. How do you respond? Are you jealous? Are you angry at God because you deserve better? You know, in all of that, I believe, once again, we're becoming a scribe. We, we don't believe that God is doing for us what we deserve. And friends, that's spiritual accounting that looks a lot like the self-righteousness text. So if this is you, let me just encourage you. I think this might be a little bit of all of us, maybe a lot of some of us. But there's a far better righteousness available to you than your own self-righteousness. See, self-righteousness, it enslaves, it enrages, it angers. But God's righteousness frees us to be honest about God, about ourselves, and about others. And deep down, we know that our works can't save us. 
See, I love what John Newton said as he sounded a very similar statement at the end of his life, in which he boasted of numerous horrendous debits that I talked about before, and also a number of magnificent credits. But as he stared death in the face, he said this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. One is that I am a great sinner. And second, that I have a great Savior. Praise God that we have a great Savior. Let's pray to Him right now. Pray with me.